Yes, sweetheart? There's a girl wants to see you. Her name's Wonderly. Customer? I guess so. You'll want to see her anyway. She's a knockout. Sure in, Effie, darling. Sure in. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. And welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, and I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me, as always, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. How are you today? Apparently I'm lovely, so that's nice. Well, I think so. <laughs> and I'm just talking about how you look, of course, oh, not actually your, you know, weird. temperament. I thought you loved me for my mind. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I'm totally shallow. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Nakia's first viewing of a true Hollywood classic, John Huston's seminal noir, The Maltese Falcon. Are you excited, Nakia? I'm actually looking forward to The Maltese Falcon. That's a rare occurrence. <laughs> do you want to hear my Bogart impersonation? I, I do not, because if it's anything like your Connery or your uh, Herzog, or any, then no, I, my Herzog, your yes, Herzog. My Herzog is spot on. And then the Herzog. <laughs> Do you want to do this entire episode as Werner Herzog? Like... <laughs> okay. <laughs> but first, since we are way behind schedule this week, we are fortuitously recording this on the morning that the Academy Award nominations were announced. As I try to do every year, I was up at the ungodly hour of two fucking early o'clock to watch them. I had to wake him up at two fucking early o'clock to watch them. Thank you for that. No problem. I mean, you know, if we're going to say it, let's say it right. <laughs> So I thought we could talk about those a little bit. I Personally, I have sort of a love-hate thing with the Oscars. I, I think the love goes back to when I was a kid. The Oscar annual Oscar ceremony was kind of a secular holiday in our house. And it was different then. There were, you know, this was the pre-cable era of three networks. There weren't that many opportunities to see your favorite celebrities. There weren't a lot of popular cultural celebrations of artists and craft and storytelling. So the Oscars were kind of unique and special back then. It's different now. It's, you know, we have umpteen million televised award shows. By the time the Oscars come around, we're sick to death of the award shows and all the same people winning. And in general, we're bombarded with celebrities 24 hours a day through various media. So it's really not the same. And yet I still have that lingering addiction to the Oscars. And then the other problem, of course, is that now that I see more movies... It's impossible not to realize that the Oscars are kind of total bullshit. I mean, it's it's no longer even a question of hoping that the Academy nominates the best movies of the year. It's just a matter of hoping that they accidentally nominate one or two of the best movies of the year, along with the usual dross. So let's, let's ask the unenthusiastic critic, who, by definition, never sees anything. <laughs> Nakia, what have you seen this year among the Oscar nominees? I have a different relationship with the Oscars. Um, I did not grow up watching it at home. Surprise, surprise. Um, most because we didn't really see movies. And I just, I don't think that was anything. I don't think my mom watches award ceremonies to this day. Uh, she'd probably care less. Um, so I didn't really have that. And then I didn't really get into it until you started having the televised red carpets. And I, was, I watched those because I'm really just here for the dresses. 
So that's kind of why I <laughs> tune in. I tune in for the dresses and to vote for everybody black. That's basically the my only investment. So we watch all the award shows yeah, together. Right. For different reasons. I'm there for the dresses and to, and to support. <laughs> you sort of tune out black when the actual award show starts. <laughs> the actual award show is whatever. But I, I do push back on the idea that the Oscars are bullshit. Like, I, I get the idea that, you know, it's really sort of this just industry thing and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't actually carry any weight in terms of what the actual quality of the art is. But I do think, particularly for actors and directors and screenwriters from marginalized communities, it is something to say I am an Oscar-nominated director and I am an Oscar-nominated actress as, you know, a black woman or a trans person. So I do think that, you know, whether or not that should be the case, it does hopefully open some faces at tables that they may have been closed off to before, though that doesn't. I mean, we've seen no. where that doesn't always happen, where we've had wonderful actors or actors and of color and directors of color who didn't necessarily get opportunities after that. But, you know, that's the idea is that that would be how it works out. I, no, I, I completely agree with that. It's just in terms of the dollar value attached to getting an Oscar nomination, mm -hmm. they're hugely important in that way. I was speaking just from the perspective of actually assessing the critical right. work oh, yeah, yeah. and realizing that, you know, a dozen of my favorite movies are not even on the radar this year. Right. And every year. So... I always end up angry at the end of every one of these award shows. And then, from what I have seen, I have not seen a lot, surprisingly. Um, for Best Picture, I've seen two of them. I've seen Get Out and uh, The Shape of Water. And then I've seen some other movies that have gotten uh, awards in other categories. So I've seen Mudbound. Baby Driver, I believe, is nominated for a technical award. Mm -hmm. um, what else have I seen? Guardians of the Galaxy 2, I think it's up. <laughs> I think that did get a nomination. <laughs> for some yes. sort of technical award. <laughs> you just like group. <laughs> I really do like group. Um, but yeah, for in terms of like the big, is it 10 of them? The big one? Doing, it's not, there's nine. Best the big nine, nominees. I've seen two. So Okay. And of those, which two, which, which are you rooting for? I'm rooting for Get Out. Yeah. <laughs> of the available nominees, Get Out is definitely what I'm rooting for. Um, I liked most of the others. I saw all of them except for Darkest Hours, the only one I haven't seen. And I liked Phantom Thread way more than I... I mean, that's just... That's a film lover's porn. It's so meticulously made, and the, the cinematography and the sound design and everything is so great on it. But if you're not... A film nerd, you're probably gonna not get what that, what makes that so special. But yeah, Get Out. I was pleased to see all the nominations for Get Out. Um, Daniel Kaluuya was also nominated for lead actor. Uh, Jordan Peele was nominated for director, first time filmmaker nominated. So that was exciting. I was disappointed with the lack of love for the Florida Project. Yeah, I did love the Florida Project. Willem Dafoe's nomination was the only nomination for that. And I really wanted to see Brooklyn Prince. <laughs> she was uh, amazing. She was great. <laughs> she was and she's been a delight on <laughs> all the interviews in the red carpet. So. We also saw no love for Patty Jenkins or Wonder Woman this year. The Wonder Woman was completely shut out. It didn't even get a nomination in the technical categories, which was kind of disappointing. I just don't understand that at all. And I mean, it's not, I think people were hoping it was going to get a Best Picture nomination. I think that was a long shot. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think any of the superhero movies have ever been nominated. I think the closest would be uh, Mad Max Fury Road a couple mm-hmm. years ago was nominated. That's the only time a movie like that has been nominated. But I think I would have liked to have seen Patty Jenkins get a nomination. And certainly I think the movie deserved nominations for costumes and production design and some of the technical categories. So in terms of representation, what are your thoughts? Um, I mean... I think in terms of like looking at the best picture category, you have the sort of expected Oscar bait movies, so like Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, The Post. Um, but then you also have some movies in there that I think are a little bit odd. So you have Get Out and Lady Bird. Um, the Shape of Water is kind of a weird one. I don't know if that's typical Oscar bait or not. I, mean, I think that's actually the most nominated movie this year. I is think it's it? got like 13 nominations or something. Across the board. How did Pan's Labyrinth do? Uh, I don't remember. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. Okay. And lost to The Lives of Others. Okay. Which was a great movie. So that was a kind of a heartbreaker because I loved both those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember if it picked. I probably picked. I think it picked up a makeup nomination mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Because uh, I don't think this is Guillermo's best movie. I don't either. And it was nominated for screenplay, and to me, the screenplay is the weak yeah. element of that picture. Like, visually, it was beautiful. Vis- because it's And Sally Hawkins is fantastic. <laughs> Sally Hawkins was great. And I think, in terms of her her body of work, and just this year, she was also in Maudie, which she was tremendous. So, I'm I'm happy for her nomination. I'm less excited about the Richard Jenkins and Octavia Spencer nominations for that movie. Yeah, I mean, Octavia Spencer, because she's Octavia Spencer, she brought a lot to that role and, and, you know, gave it some body and some life. But that was just, she was a sort of sassy black maid um, with a shiftless husband. Which which has already won her one Oscar. It's already won her one Oscar. But Octavia is great, but that was not an Oscar-worthy performance, in my opinion. So there was some good news in terms of representation this year. Uh, Greta Gerwig becomes only the fifth woman ever nominated in the Best Director category, um, which is good. Now, Sad and good. Right. <laughs> because we also would have liked to have seen Dee Reese yes. nominated in that category for Mudbound, yes. and that did not happen. That did not happen. And the fact that we're only on five women directors, and this is the 90th? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's horrifying. That's pretty disgusting. But no, yeah, I mean, Mudbound was beautiful, and Dee Reese is an amazingly, amazingly talented director, and I was really hoping that that would get some love. Though Mary J. Blige got a nomination, which she was just amazing in her role. And I'm glad it didn't get lost because it's a really quiet performance that is all about the sort of interiority of that character. And I think the Oscars don't always necessarily celebrate those types of performances. Mm-hmm. And the other good news coming out of that is that even though Dee Reese didn't get nominated, her cinematographer, Rachel Morrison, yeah. did get nominated and becomes the first woman ever to be nominated in cinematography. And it's a beautiful film. It, really it, it is. is. just it's a visually really beautiful film. Very beautiful film. We have what I think has to be our first trans director nominated this year. In the Best Documentary Feature category, Yance Ford's documentary, Strong Island. So that's kind of exciting. 
Don't we also have a foreign film about a trans woman starring a trans woman? Yes, which I have not seen yet. That movie has not opened here yet, and I'm dying to see that movie. Um, a Fantastic Woman, it's called. But it looks great. I was also really happy to see Daniel Kaluuya nominated. He's been nominated for a few awards. hasn't mm-hmm. picked one up yet. I don't know what his chances are in terms of the Oscar. But that's another role sort of similar to Mary J's where it's a lot of it is the sort of internalized work that's happening that he then has to sort of translate and make the audience feel what he's experiencing. It's a really kind of complex role, partially because the, the movie is so complex and that it's a comedy and a horror movie and sort of a documentary. And sort of, <laughs> so you have a bunch of different tones happening and you have to make it feel real throughout the whole yeah. thing. And you're sort of serving as a surrogate for the black audience and then also making it accessible enough that, you know, larger audiences are also understanding the sort of fear that's happening there and and sort of what's going on with that character internally. So I think he did a really amazing job. Yeah, it's a tremendous performance. I actually actually just watched Get Out Again Mm -hmm. the other night. And, I mean, the the sunken place scene... That's obviously what he's going to put on his Oscar reel. Yeah. But throughout the entire film, just the way he kind of wordlessly registers his his reactions to some of the comments that the white people are making right. around him. and It's all interior. Yeah, it's, it's, all... it's really an incredible performance. I don't, sadly, think he has a chance right. in that category. And I'm a little, I'm getting increasingly worried that Get Out is just going to be screwed mm-hmm. across the board, that it's not going to win anything this season. Can we talk about the fact that that film was, I would argue, the only film to sort of saturate the pop culture consciousness in the way that it did? I mean, now people are saying the sunken place. Like, the Mm -hmm. sunken place is now a term that people are using. I don't know that any other film has has sort of resonated with the moment as much as Get Out has. And the sort sort of cultural legs that it has and will continue to have is a really powerful thing. So I'm hoping that it will get some recognition. Yeah, I mean, on the glasses half full side, I mean, horror movies in general, which I think is how we would mostly characterize that film, do not get that kind of recognition in general. But you're right. I mean, 20 years from now, people are going to be watching Get Out. They are not going to be watching, you know, fucking... (laughs) Darkest Hour. (laughs) Darkest Hour. Or... The post, quite frankly. (laughs) I will say, I'm really bummed that Betty Gabriel, who played Georgina in Get Out, has not gotten more award season love because I thought she was fucking brilliant. Like she, her acting in that movie has probably stuck with me more than anybody else. It's just, I just think she's so powerful in it for what small part that she has. And I really would have loved to have seen her get a little bit more recognition. Mm-hmm. She's she's just amazing. And that's another one where there's all these different layers happening of there's the black woman inside of this white woman who's playing a black woman. Mm-hmm. And, it, and her interaction with Kaluuya's character around the phone charger where she starts to break and she's crying. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it's amazing. And I love her. And so I, I would, I'm excited to see her in more things. And I wish she'd gotten a little bit more recognition. Okay, anything else to say about the Oscar nominations? It's not a horrible slate of nominees. Except for three billboards. 
Except for Three Billboards, <laughs> which is a whole other conversation. Which I haven't seen. I know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is how my... Welcome un- to Life of the Unenthusiastic right. Critic. She has very strong opinions About on movies I have she not has seen. not and has no intention of seeing. <laughs> well, because that falls into two different categories, right? There are movies that I haven't seen. A lot of the films that you, we are kind of exploring in this project, I didn't see because I was either too young or it just didn't... It was never introduced to me, so I just missed it. It wasn't a conscious decision to not see these films. Right. Whereas there are quite a few contemporary films that I consciously choose not to see for various reasons. Uh, one of them being Three Billboards, uh, mainly because of Sam Rockwell's character, who he, he's apparently getting a lot of award love for it. But from what I have heard from various <laughs> <laughs> uh, reviewers, is that that's a very sort of uh, troubling character and it's it's michael mcdonough no that's you michael mc what's his name it's martin mcdonough (laughs) martin Martin mcdonough different spelling no relation (laughs) um is trying to sort of get at these themes of police brutality and racism in a really sort of clumsy way and it's supposed to be nuanced and ambiguous i don't think he has the range as they would say and this sort of anti-black violence on the part of this cop becomes sort of this kind of quirky character trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not actually explored and it's not delved into. And it's also not particularly interesting. So if you're making some sort of argument that, you know, let's talk about anti-black police violence and your sort of explanation for that or your, or your sort of way to kind of bring nuance to that is to say, well, he has a really rough home life or he's dealing with a lot of stuff and so he's taking that out on black people. Well, that's, I mean, you need to have more to say or you need to not say that because that's also just not it's not a new idea it's not an analysis of anything Mm -hmm. Um, especially when we have police officers getting off after murdering black and brown people for the sole reason that oh i was you know i was just scared you know i was just worried so this idea of like oh we really need to kind of delve into the interior lives of police and, and that sort of gets at why he may be a racist. I just, like, I, I'm not interested in, in seeing that. I can watch the news if I want to see that. Um, and it was the same with uh, Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, where that, again, was just, you were just using violence against black bodies in a really sort of exploitative way. You weren't saying anything mm-hmm. new. You weren't bringing any sort of analysis to it. So I was right. not going to do that. Neither of those movies you saw... Not Both of which <laughs> you made me go see and said, go see this movie and tell me if it's as fucked up as everyone is telling me it is. Because, again, like, I, we experience that on a daily basis. We are bombarded with that sort of message in the real world. I don't then need to go pay to see yeah, a movie no, about that. You were, you not... were absolutely right not to see Detroit. Right. That yeah. was, there was no reason to subject yourself to that. Three billboards. I, I didn't like the movie. I do think the best interpretation is that it's just painfully tone deaf in how it uses these issues. Um, Alyssa Rosenberg had a piece in the New York Times last week where she said it was like a movie about American culture directed by a Martian. <laughs> like just that McDonough just has this outsider's view of American culture. Um, I do think the character Sam Rockwell plays is extremely problematic i think you know it's not even that mcdonough is dealing with issues of police brutality it's just that he's sort of using them as a character tree right and even if you give it the charitable interpretation that the film is attempting to humanize that kind of cop that is not 
a good goal. That is not something that we need is to humanize the racist brutal cop. I just, yeah, I really, I really didn't like the movie. I am actively rooting against it in every category now, just on general principle. But Rockwell has the momentum at this point. He's won. He does. I'm hoping there's going to be a last-minute La La Land moonlight situation where there's a last-minute reprieve. And an encouraging sign is that Martin McDonough was not nominated for director. So that's, as far as the Mm -hmm. Best Picture race goes, that's kind of an encouraging sign. Mm -hmm. It would be unusual for the film to win when the director wasn't nominated. Though it has happened before with, for example, Driving Miss Daisy. Which we, yeah. so we shall see what happens yeah okay well is there anything you want to see before the oscars so you can if nothing else have you know i didn't see coco and i i really did want to see coco um and i didn't because of the whole olaf cartoon thing but apparently it doesn't have that anymore yeah no i waited until they took that piece (laughs) of shit off in front of coco so i do want to see coco I want to see Call Me By Your Name. I've heard that it's, it's really beautiful and well done. I liked it. I didn't like it as much as everyone else yeah. liked it. And that's... I mean, the post... You can't really go wrong with Street and Hanks and Spielberg, and yet I have no interest at all. I just... Don't you sort of feel like you've already seen the movie? Like you don't even need to see the movie? And that sounds terrible. And I have to I report, know she's amazing that's in true. It. I know like, she's amazing. In it, it was the movie that I pretty much exactly expected it to be. It was fine. They were both good. Street was excellent like, as yeah. always. The only thing that would get me to see Phantom Thread is that I think he's sort of supposed to be based off of Charles James and the whole construction, beautiful construction of dresses and gowns and garments. Yes, I'm nodding along <laughs> as if I know who that is. <laughs> Really amazingly talented American couturier. Very well. Just, yes. Um, so I actually think you would like that movie, and I think we should see it in a theater. It's one of those. It's one of those. Because I think yeah. on the small screen, the impact is not going to be. Okay. I saw it in 70 millimeter at the music box here in Chicago, and just the soundscape and the depth of field and the cinematography, that's what made the movie for me. Okay. And it's very much a movie of very subtle glances and sounds and nuances so maybe we'll go see that one dunkirk i have no interest you're I'm not sure. really a war movie sure, kind sure of girl. it's wonderful <laughs> and then darkest hour i just i'm done with winston churchill i that's fine i don't need to see another winston churchill movie um and late i guess i should see ladybird <laughs> <laughs> You, well, you, you definitely wanted to see uh, Blade Runner 2049. I definitely you? did not want to see Blade Runner 2049. Being such a big Blade Runner fan and expert as you are. I'm, I'm good on that. Thanks. On that, the only thing I will say is Roger Deakins is nominated for cinematography. Poor Roger Deakins has been... This is his 14th nomination, and he has never won. He's the Susan Lucci? Oh, no. He's the Susan Lucci of the Oscars. Oh. He, he lends... Almost all of the Coen Brothers movies, so oh, wow. Fargo and No Country for Old Men. Um, he's great. He did Sicario. He was nominated for Sicario a few years ago, and he has never won. So I am, if nothing else, rooting for Roger Deakins, even though I didn't like Blade Runner 2049 that much. Hmm. Only other thing, did anybody see Roman J. Israel as choir? That's my question. Um, I don't know. Well, you didn't, that. and I, I did didn't. Not. 
don't, I don't know, know anyone, anyone who did. Who saw it. And from the reviews I read, it wasn't a great movie. Uh, no, I, I never. I didn't hear any buzz that would no. make me think I needed to see. I mean, I Roman heard Denzel was great because he's Denzel, and Denzel is going to be great. But I didn't hear any positives about the movie. Um, so. It's just going to be another night of Denzel looking ornery at a table <laughs> in a suit. I just, I, like, he is kind of surly. He's just very surly. And I yeah. get it. Like you saw, what's that douche's name? Casey Affleck go up there and take that award last year. Oh, yeah. Well, that, yeah. For fucking fences. Justified. Like you did not get fences, dude. And Casey Affleck gets it. And like, I just, okay. Yeah. So I'm all about Denzel sitting there in the front row looking like, fuck you, motherfuckers. I put this suit on. Okay, I think we can wrap this up. Maybe we'll do a, another segment after the Oscars. Where we talk about dresses? If you like, we can talk <laughs> about dresses. We are not Tom and Lorenzo. <laughs> well, you are. I am neither Tom I am neither nor Tom Lorenzo, nor Lorenzo. So my contribution is going to be limited, but I think that's okay. <laughs> they actually have a student analysis probably be welcome. of fashion. I just say, oh, I don't like that. Or, oh, that's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> What I say is, where's Lupita? That's who I look for on the red carpet. Is Lupita on the carpet? No. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. We were talking about a lot more money than this. There are more of us to be taken care of now. Well, that may be, but I've got the falcon. You may have the falcon. We certainly have you. I've taken a lot of riding from you I'm going to take. Get up and shoot it out. Stop it. The police will be here any minute. Now talk. Oh, how can you accuse me of such a terrible... This isn't the time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. So for your viewing pleasure today, we're going to be watching The Maltese Falcon, John Huston's 1941 film adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's quintessential detective novel. And this is usually where I try to justify my choice of film. Uh, but I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground this week. I mean, in terms of its place in cinematic history, this is certainly the most indispensable film we've watched so far for the podcast. And it's one of the most important, I think, we've ever watched for the enthusiastic critic. It's the first film for legendary Hollywood director John Huston. It's a film that cemented Bogart as a leading man. It's widely considered the first film noir, or the first prominent film noir. And it's really the film that ushered into the public consciousness that quintessential American archetype, the hard-boiled detective. So I think it's pretty inarguably an important film. None of that, of course, means that you're actually going to like it. <laughs> I'm actually excited about this one. Oh. I'm sorry. Can you can you say that into the mic a I know, little louder? Because we want to make is, sure it's hard we get to that leave. on the record. It's this hard is to unprecedented. Leave. I'm going against type here. From We're going to have to rename the show. I know. It's, yeah, you're, not, is, you're not unenthusiastic yeah, this week. I'm, I'm fucking up. But I have never really seen any film noir, so I'm interested in you know being exposed to that. And I'm always happy to watch Bogart, so... So what have you seen for Bogart? So, okay, so I thought about this when we said we were going to do this, because I kept thinking, like, I know that I've seen him in something else. I've seen Sabrina, 
and I've seen Casablanca. Um, I think that was one of the first films that we watched together when we started yeah, dating. That, if that it was, wasn't day one, it was pretty it was, close. It was, was very like, early. If you haven't seen Casablanca. <laughs> we need to rectify that. That was before situation. we even, that was before I had a blog. That was before, you know. Right. Um, so, and I probably showed you like Love Jones or something right after um, uh, as my sort of retort. But yeah, so, but then I remembered that I had seen uh, Bogart or a version of Bogart early in my life uh there is a bugs bunny cartoon called slick hair <laughs> yes there is so that was probably my first exposure to bogart okay that might have been my first exposure to bogart too now <laughs> that i think about it i'd forgotten about that if it's rabbit baby wants again. rabbit baby gets i'm guessing he probably didn't play himself he did not no that. i looked that up no <laughs> It was an impersonator, <laughs> but it was perfect. It was spot on. So that was my first uh, experience with so the Bogart archetype. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if we've talked about this. Bogart was my first film obsession. Mm. Probably junior high school, right around then. So you were super cool. <laughs> yes, I was super cool. Mm -hmm. That's right. Who's cooler than Bogart? Nobody's cooler than Bogart. But who in junior high okay. is like Bogart? <laughs> we can leave out your judgment about my misspent youth and what a film nerd I was. I mean, probably Casablanca was the first Bogart film that I saw that started that obsession. Though, like The Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep, those would have followed shortly thereafter. And, yeah, I mean, I had... It's it's probably the only time in my life I've actually collected anything. You had Bogart action figure? I did not have Bogart. Did he come with a cigarette? Okay. First of all, that should be a thing. It's not a thing. That should totally Five be a thing. Five o'clock shadow. <laughs> but I... My mother is a, a dealer in vintage paper. So I collected, like, a lot of, like, the posters, the old movie posters, the old ads, the... Studio stills, that kind of stuff. I had, like, framed pictures of Bogart all over my room. And that, yeah, that probably was, as much as anything, where my film obsession really started. Mm. I also collected hats, like the fedoras. <laughs> Not the contemporary douchebag fedoras that you see people wearing now. Like the real, the old felt hats. But, like, yes, I think I wanted to be Bogart when I grew up. I failed miserably. In that well, endeavor. it doesn't really work with a members-only jacket. That okay. it's you know you it doesn't. <laughs> you got to really have the whole that's, look down. That's just hurtful. Um, well, it's truthful though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what about? I was also thinking about. I'm, we have never watched a detective story no. or a mystery movie for this series. No. And I so I have been and I apologize. I have obviously been neglectful in that part of this project. I don't know how many you've actually seen. I don't think I've seen really any of those sort of classic kind of gumshoe mold sort of films. I don't, I don't know that I've seen any, to be quite honest. Okay. The closest thing we have watched to that, and we, I, we don't need to go down this road again. We've done it several times already. Okay. But Blade Runner is actually mm -hmm. very self-consciously a film noir detective story mm -hmm. set in a sci-fi world. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's the closest thing we've, we've done to that. So I think there will be several more probably that we're going to want to do. Um, definitely The Big Sleep. 
I, I debated back and forth whether we were going to do the Big Sleep or the Maltese Falcon this week, because um, I love them both. I think the Maltese Falcon is first and therefore more influential and more important from that perspective. Dorothy Malone, who has a small but memorable part in The Big Sleep, died a couple of days after we announced that we were going to do the Maltese Falcon. That probably would have swung me the other way. I would have said, you know, in honor of Dorothy Malone, we would do the Big Sleep, but we'll get to it eventually. Because that's Bogey and Bacall, which is just a whole other dynamic that you need to experience. So as far as mysteries go, I mean, I think before we go into this, one of the things that we could talk about that's maybe good to know is, like I said, this whole hard-boiled detective thing was kind of a new phenomenon at this point. Mysteries, detective stories had always been more in the Sherlock Holmes, Mm -hmm. puzzle-solving. Stories tended to be set among the upper class, Um, kind of high society, you know, you had your snooty amateur detectives like Hercule Poirot, that kind of thing. So this, this kind of working class detective working in and sort of exposing the seedy underside of American society was a relatively new creation. I mean, it started in the 20s. There's a guy named Carol John Daly who's sort of, sort of credited with creating the first real hard-boiled detective. There was a pulp magazine called Black Mask that published a lot of these stories in the 20s. And then DeShiel Hammett, who wrote the novel The Maltese Falcon in 1930, that novel was a big success. And that was really what introduced this type of character into a prominent position in the culture. Warner Brothers had bought the rights to The Maltese Falcon. They actually ended up filming it three times. The Maltese Falcon is the third remake of this same story. There was a 1931 version um, starring Ricardo Cortez, and there was a 1936 version very loosely based on the novel called Satan Met a Lady starring Betty Davis, mm-hmm. um, and that was apparently, they played it more as a comedy, kind of a light, a light comedy. I haven't seen either of these. I probably should have watched them before we did this, but I didn't. Neither of them is supposed to be particularly good. The first one is pre-Hayes Code, which is kind of the censorship code that came into effect during the 30s and 40s in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to end up talking about that because I think a lot of the restrictions that the Hayes Code put on this type of movie create some interesting tensions and some... Like, a lot of these movies, the plot is way more complicated than it needs to be simply because the movie can't say exactly what's going on because of censorship laws. So like in The Big Sleep, there's this whole story about underground pornography. If you didn't already know that, the movie does... Like, it's it's way more confusing than it needs to be simply because nobody can say, this guy was selling dirty pictures. I see. Or, you know, taking dirty pictures of this woman. So there's stuff like that going on. So the 1931 version was pre-code. Um... So it had sort of steamier scenes, and it was a little smuttier than what came along later. Apparently, Warner Brothers had wanted to re-release that movie and couldn't do it, and that's why they ended up making this remake. Okay. And they hired John Huston, who was the first-time director. Huston insisted on Bogart, who up until that point had really been playing secondary roles. He'd been playing a lot of bad guy roles. He had just done a film called High Sierra, 
in which he played a bad guy, but it was kind of a leading part, and that was, you know, one of his more prominent roles to date. This was really his first, quote-unquote, good guy role, and we can discuss after we watch the movie how much of a good guy Sam Spade actually is. So do you like Bogart? Are you a Bogart fan? I don't know that I can claim fan because I've seen so little of his work. Um, like I said, I just I saw Sabrina and I saw Casablanca, so it seems like... you saw the Bugs Bunny cartoon. And the Bugs Bunny cartoon, um, where he was very attentive to Lauren Bacall's need for rabbit. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> So what I know of Bogart is the sort of kind of dry, bitter, cynical love interest. And that sounds like... It sounds like this is a different sort of role for him in comparison to the two films that I've seen. Bogart, to me, is one of those... He's one of those actors that's kind of stuck in time for me. Like, Bogart's always been 40 or 45. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know young Bogart. I don't really know old Bogart. I guess he didn't... He died fairly... He died um, in the 50s, so... Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I mean, I, I I've enjoyed I enjoy those two movies. I wouldn't say that there's a ton of range on display in those two movies, but he's very good at that kind of charismatic Scotch and cigarette kind of guy in a suit. Always looks good in a suit. Do you find Bogart attractive? Uh, I, would, I mean, he was an unlikely leading man I can and see, an unlikely has, yeah. romantic leading. He man. has a, a character actor's face. Um, I would not say that he was classically attractive, but I can see he is very charismatic. Um, and he has, he's more of a, like, he's a vibe. Like, Bogart is a style. It's, not, it's, it's a kind of, so you're, you know, it's the very beautiful suit, and it's the cigarette, and it's the scotch, and it's the just kind of bitter, sharp humor. And so those are all attractive things. If I just looked at Bogart, no, I don't. <laughs> One of the things I read, and I apologize, I don't remember where I read this, um, but somebody talked about his insolence being mm. one of the keys to his character and referred to him as the sort of guy who insults you and you like him for it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's very true. Yeah. That it's like, even when he's insulting you, you want him to be... Right. Because he does it well. There's yeah. a class to it and you just got to say kudos to you, yeah. asshole. <laughs> <laughs> You have to respect it. <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead and watch the movie. I'm, now I'm a little worried. Usually you come in expecting to hate something, mm -hmm. and I hope you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Now I'm worried you're coming in expecting to like something. And I'm going to end up hating it. And you might end up hating it. I don't think I'm going to hate it. I mean, it's the Maltese Falcon. It's pretty much established in the in the canon, so... Well, that... That doesn't always That's true. mean that anything. That doesn't always to you. mean anything. Gone to me with at the all. wind is pretty. Well, gone with the again. wind is <laughs> okay, evil let's... garbage, and I just I'm not gonna do this. No, <laughs> but no, I don't think I'm gonna hate it. Okay, well, let's find out. <laughs> Listen, this won't do any good. You'll never understand me, but I'll try once and then give it up. When a man's partner's killed, he's supposed to do something about it. It doesn't make any difference what you thought of him. He was your partner, and you're supposed to do something about it. And it happens we're in the detective business. Well, when one of your organization gets killed, it's, it's bad business to let the killer get away with it. Bad all around. Bad for every detective everywhere. You don't expect me to think that these things you're saying are sufficient reason for sending me to this. Wait till I'm through, then you can talk. 
I've no earthly reason to think I can trust you, and if I do this and get away with it, you'll have something on me that you can use whenever you want to. Since I've got something on you, I couldn't be sure that you wouldn't put a hole in me someday. All those are on one side. Maybe some of them are unimportant. I won't argue about that. But look at the number of them. What have we got on the other side? All we've got is that maybe you love me and maybe I love you. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched the Maltese Falcon. So if you have not seen it, and if you want to, you should go do that now. Because we are going to be venturing into spoiler territory of this 75-year-old movie. (laughs) Nikia, what did you think of the Maltese Falcon? Well, unfortunately for you and perhaps our listeners, I did not hate it. I know it's better when I hate things. It's always so much more fun when you hate things. I love shitting on things, but I can't shit on things. Well, now you know why I pick the movies that I do. (laughs) So from here on out, only things you're going to hate. New policy. No. No. We've agreed. I enjoy the Maltese Falcon. I'm happy to have seen the Maltese Falcon. (laughs) So what did you enjoy about it? I thought it was beautifully filmed. I liked... I don't see a lot of black and white film, so it's always nice to do that. And the way... The shot compositions and how they play with sort of light and uh, depth is really good. Um, Really interesting. So I enjoyed that. I thought the dialogue was very, you know, snappy Mm -hmm. and snarky. And so that's always going to be a plus in my book. Um, The plot made no sense, really. In fact, I was going to ask you, do you want to just, like, for our listeners, just kind of recount the plot? So there's a bird. (laughs) Everybody wants this bird. Um, I think there's more to it than that. (laughs) There's, like, this old... Um, like Southern saying that my, my grandma used to say, it was like, who shot John? And, but, and it's just, it's, I don't know who shot John. Um, but I think there's a, so there's a bird. <laughs> there's a very. Spoiler alert. Desirable, expensive bird that a lot of people want. Um, and so that dude shoots that dude. And then that dude shoots that dude. And then that dude shoots that dude. No, she shoots one of the dudes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. You've pretty much got it. And then the bird turns out to be nothing. Because it's made of tin or something or whatever. Iron, lead, yes. All right, that's actually a pretty good summation. I think it is. Of the Maltese Falcon. I think it is. I mean, the two things that you've just said, talking about like the, the black and white cinematography and the camera angles... And the ridiculously complicated plot. I mean, that's like 80% of the definition of film noir right there. (laughs) What is film noir, actually? I mean, so there's there's a lot of debate on that point as far as what defines something as film noir. There's debate over whether it's a film genre, you know, based on its themes and its content, or whether it's a film style. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, characterized by its attributes. So in terms of the style, I mean, I think it's it's the high contrast lighting, the, you know, the shadows, the sort of dark and oppressive cinematography, the extreme and kind of skewed camera angles right. that you were talking about is one of the things that defines film noir, amping up the drama and the mm-hmm. stress of every shot. And then as far as the elements go, I think we see a lot of the archetypal ones in The Maltese Falcon. 
You've got the kind of the cynical investigator. You've got the criminals, all of whom are lying constantly. You've got the femme fatale character. You've got the... The girl Friday. The girl Friday character, <laughs> exactly. Effie in the Maltese Falcon. There's, there's a MacGuffin of some kind, some sort of stolen or missing valuable, usually. You've got a lot of smoking and a lot of drinking. <laughs> you've got a ridiculously complex plot that makes no sense. You've got that kind of snappy, cynical dialogue. And then I think it's, it's a mood and almost a worldview that is bleak and cynical. And generally, there's not going to be a happy ending. Right. So it's that to me is what it is more than anything else is it's this kind of way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. So taking a modern example of kind of a neo-noir, I think even though it doesn't have the urban, the urban setting is, I think, generally considered one of the key elements of film noir, but like No Country for Old Man mm -hmm. is very noir. Okay. And if nothing else, just because of that bleak worldview Things are not going to work right. as okay. <laughs> Everybody is kind of awful. None of it really makes sense. There's this kind of random element to how mm -hmm. things happen that speaks to this sort of cosmic indifference <laughs> about justice and the lives of people. And I think that's, I think that's all present in the Malte in the Maltese Falcon. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was it was such an influential film, because that was sort of unusual for Hollywood in those days, mm -hmm. where movies tended to have happy endings, and everything worked out, and everybody got what they deserved. Okay. So we, we can talk about that a little more a little later, but let's, as a way into that, let's, let's talk about Sam Spade, about the character <laughs> of Sam Spade. <laughs> what did you make of him? Sam Spade is cold. <laughs> I mean, our first introduction to him is once his care his, uh, his partner is murdered. He's like, okay, well, ch change the name. I'll take the name off the door. <laughs> Get his desk out of here. Take the name off the door. Make my name bigger. So that didn't, you know, make him seem all warm and fuzzy at all. He didn't seem to be mourning very much. And then he made out with his murdered. <laughs> the partner's widow. wife right. so you know you start to question a little bit the integrity of a person like that um, <laughs> and pretty much through the whole movie he's playing that sort of both sides thing where you, you don't quite know where he right. falls in terms of is he a hero or is he actually this sort of kind of right. corrupt guy and the novel the Shield Hammett's novel is kind of like that too it's it's all third person, and there's no internal monologue. Mm. We never hear... It's all from Sam's point of view, but we never hear what he's thinking. Right. It's just what he does and what he says. And so it, it creates that ambiguity where we're never quite inside his head, and we're never quite sure what his motivations are, or what he's really up to. And I think John Huston in the movie captures that brilliantly. That mm -hmm. it's, it's, we, we're right on the... Like, is this guy a scumbag? Right. Is he... You know, playing both sides, trying to get to the, get to the truth. Well, what, what in the end do you think is the answer to that question? I think he is a flawed individual. Okay. I, I think he is, I mean, at the end he has this whole little speech about this, I need to get justice for my partner. And so that, so he turns in, what is her name? She has like 18 names. 
Yeah. O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Um, so he, he ends up turning her in at the end. So theoretically that means that he is on the side of right and he is on the side of justice. Sort of. Um, again, this whole, I'm doing this for my partner, but you were also screwing your partner's wife. I was, right. You know. Okay. Um, but... And you're never really sure quite how he... Well, maybe he does love her. He just will love her after 20 years in prison. <laughs> if they don't hang if her... If they don't hang by her. her seat at first. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. We're jumping right to the ending, and it's hard not to, because right. this movie is really all about the ending. Right. There's that last... It's like a 20-minute scene that has all five main characters... In, locked in one room towards the end of the movie mm -hmm. and then it culminates in that conversation right with bridget in which he says yeah you know yeah maybe i love you but you're going down anyway and if you die i'll always remember you so it's like <laughs> i need to now find a way to incorporate that into my life somehow i need to give that speech to someone well we've already established that if i you know if you ever have the chance you're going to turn me into well, i'm not going down <laughs> no no I'm a black woman. I'm not. Mm -mm, no. Mm -mm. I need an Effie. I need a Girl Friday. No. Who's gonna? No. Stand by me. Mm -hmm. But it was different to see. I think that's a different characterization for Bogart than I had seen in Sabrina and um, Casablanca. Casablanca. I mean, there's there's some of that sort of smarmy sharpness runs in all three of them. But one of the things that sort of unnerved me a little bit in this performance was that smile that he would get when he was like oh I'm really getting over on it was, it was mm -hmm. a little bit because I don't think I've ever seen Bogart really smile <laughs> I was like ah oh, this is I'm, I'm unnerved um so it was a little bit sort of darker and more cynical I think than some other characters that I've seen of his but yeah he's I mean Rick Blaine in Casablanca is a cynical character he is. but he has this kind of soft romantic right broken heart inside right. and that that is very much kind of the the bogart model but yeah this is different yeah sam spade is a genuinely hard-edged yeah. character and we're i i mean i've watched this movie a dozen times and i'm still not sure what kind, what of, kind of guy is. he really is yeah. and what he's really up to throughout this movie mm -hmm. whether he's you know if if the bird had turned out to be worth $2 million and if he'd gotten paid off, would he have taken the money? I I don't know. I don't think so. I think. <laughs> and this is where we're going to have to get start, kind of get into what his code is. Because right. that's an interesting thing to explore about this movie. But you're right. Yeah, he has that very chilling grin yeah. that he gets at certain moments. And I just love... He's he's having fun. He is he's throughout this himself. entire movie, yeah. even when people are pointing guns at him and punching him in the yeah. face. And I mean, he let's go back. So he gets into this situation knowing nothing, right? Like he has no idea what's going on until about halfway through the movie. <laughs> he doesn't even know what the bird is or why anyone's looking for it or what their relationships are to each other. You know. Various people tell him things. He assumes they're all lying. And he's right. They are all lying. Right. And he's okay with that. He's the guy that is comfortable being in that situation and just, okay, well, I'm going to go in. I'm going to stir up some shit. We're going to see what happens. 
eventually stuff will become clear. Right. And he enjoys that. Somehow not the smartest guy in the room, but okay with not being the smartest guy in the room. And right. using that to his advantage. And smart, But smarter than he appears to be. But smarter than be. he appears to be. And he has that great line at the end where he says, uh, don't assume I'm as crooked as I'm supposed to be. Right. Which again is that marvelous ambiguity of, you know, has he been a good guy all along? <laughs> really good. <laughs> that was just trying to get to the bottom of the mystery. Right. Yeah. So there's so this is a bit of a long digression. I think it's I think it's an interesting topic though. In the novel, there's a scene that Houston didn't use in the movie. And the movie is actually very faithful to the novel, mm-hmm. but this is one of the things he left out, and I kind of regret that he left this out. There's a point in the book where Sam Spade starts telling Bridget this story about one of his past cases. And he offers no explanation for why he's telling her this story. And after he finishes telling her the story, they don't discuss it. She says something like, oh, that's interesting. But she doesn't really understand why he's telling her this story mm-hmm. either. Like, it's, it's literally this just, like, random thing he just drops into conversation. But he's talking about, uh, it's a missing persons case that he worked about a man named Flitcraft. <laughs> And this has become known as the Flitcraft Parable. Oh, okay. Yes, it's, it's a parable. <laughs> but he was hired to find this man who had disappeared. He was a, a husband and a father, just a normal guy, a businessman who golfed every weekend. And suddenly he just disappeared from his life. And he was hired to find this guy. And when he finally fi- tracked this guy down, what had happened was Flitcraft had been walking down the street one day by a construction site, and a beam had fallen and almost killed him. Okay. And in that moment, he, Hammett, or Spade says, the life he knew was a clean, orderly, sane, responsible affair. And in that moment, he realized that's not how life works. Mm. That he that he had this nice, safe, ordered life, and then he had almost just been randomly killed by, by this beam. falling beam. Right. So basically, he had just suddenly realized the randomness of life, right. the chaos of life, right. and decided that if life was random, he would change his life at random. So he left his wife and kids, he started wandering the country, he moved around a lot. What he says was, what disturbed him was discovering that insensibly ordering his affairs, he had got out of step, not into step with life. So again, life is chaotic and random. You're trying to force order. You're trying to force order onto it. But then, by the time Spade found this guy, he had remarried. Yep. He had had more kids. <laughs> he was golfing every weekend again. <laughs> right. So this is the <laughs> other part of it. And Spade says that's the part of the story he likes. Um, he says, yeah, Spade says, but that's the part of it I always like. He adjusted himself to beams falling and then no more of them fell, and he adjusted himself to them not falling. <laughs> Until the next beam falls. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a story that there's no discussion of it in the, in the book, except for, except for Spade telling the story. So it's like, what does the Flitcraft parable mean? I mean, on the one hand, I do think it's a story about how people don't change. Right. You know, which I think factors into this movie. But on another level, and I think this kind of gets to the more almost the existential purpose of film noir and the existential worldview about 
the randomness of existence and how we pretend it's not this dark, bleak place. Right. And I think that's one reason why the the stories are so complicated and incomprehensible is because there's... It doesn't matter. Right. It's not simple. Right. Everybody's lying. It's always... You're never going to get see the full picture. And I think as far as the character of Sam Spade and in general kind of what the hard-boiled detective is in these stories is like he's the guy that's comfortable knowing that beams can fall on your head right. at any moment. Right. Which means he's never going to be happy. He's never going to be the settled down married guy who golfs on weekends. Mm -hmm. Like he exists in that kind of chaos world, that sort of bleak world where nothing is certain and everybody's lying and bad things happen to good people. Right. And he, he's comfortable navigating that world. Well, and Bridget, I think in a couple of different points of dialogue says something along the lines of, you know, you're just so wild and unpredictable. I'm never quite sure mm -hmm. what you're doing. And so I do, I do think he's that guy that's just kind of like, I'm going to ride this. Mm -hmm. I don't know quite where it's going, but I'll adjust when I get there right. and then we'll figure that out. And Which makes him almost sort of like a trickster character. Yes, very much. Yes. But then the other piece of that, and this is where we, you know, have to kind of come back to the ending, is that to me, and again, this is kind of this existential viewpoint, so in the absence of any order to the universe, in the mm -hmm. absence of any morality or justice in the universe, then he becomes the guy that sort of needs to provide the rules for himself. Right. And that's where we come to that that thing he says at the end where it's like... You murdered my partner. Right. When a, when a man's partner is murdered, he's supposed to do something about it. Right. Doesn't matter that he didn't like his partner. Right. Like there's just a certain moral code that he's going to follow and that is kind of what tells him who he is, and mm -hmm. that's how he manages to stay afloat mm -hmm. in all of this chaos. No, yeah, and that makes sense for his character, too, if you think about that and then reflect on how he behaved when he found out that his partner had been murdered. It was just kind of a matter-of-fact thing. It was like, okay, mm -hmm. so this is just one crazy thing that just happened in the universe, and I'm just going to navigate based on that. Um, but the one thing, the sort of foundation of it is there, if there is... Uh, some way to get justice, then that's sort of your your guiding compass. Right, right. And Roger Ebert had something he said about this that I liked, talking about film noir. <laughs> First of all, various definitions of film noir. I like this one from the uh, great crime writer James Elroy. He described the genre as a righteously generically American film movement that exposited one great theme. And that theme is, you're fucked. <laughs> it's very American. Which is a pretty, a pretty good working, working definition of film noir. In a similar vein, Roger Ebert called it the most American film genre because no society could have created a world so filled with doom, fate, <laughs> fear, and betrayal unless it were essentially naive and optimistic. That's, yeah. Characterizing it as quintessentially American, I think, is an, is an interesting way to talk about it, particularly Ebert's interpretation of, like, you can't have this dark chaos and uncertainty and, and, and cynicism without this sort of overlay of naive optimism, and that is sort of the idea of, like, the American dream, mm -hmm. right? It's like this, you know, you, you get married and you get the house and you get the job and right. you get the education and then everything will fall... <laughs> before you and be completely orderly and in place and go as it should go when the truth is is that that is not how 
life unfolds and it is mostly chaos and disorder and very little of it is based on sort of meritocracy and a lot of it is luck. And then looking at the film and I, at the end when he is, um, when is like the sergeant or the police officer asks him, you know, what is, what is this bird? And he's like, it's the stuff that dreams are made right. of, right? So it's everybody is chasing this dream, this imaginary dream. Right. When in reality it's just chaos and deception and lying and backstabbing all in an effort to attain this quote unquote dream. That, that is hands down one of the best final lines in movie yeah. history. And it actually wasn't in the book. It wasn't in the script. That was Bogart's contribution. Oh, okay. He came up with that. And it's a, it's a quotation from Shakespeare. For, it's from The Tempest. But Bogart suggested it as the last line for the movie. And it's perfect. I love the fact that it almost... It doesn't really matter that the bird is fake. No. And even to um, the fat man and Joel Cairo, mm-hmm. Peter Lorre's character... It doesn't really matter to them for more than a minute. Right. Like, they're they're really upset and disappointed when they first find that out. And then they're like, oh, well, we'll head off to Istanbul and continue the chase. Because it's the chase that matters. It's not really the prize. It's just just that having something to... I think they're almost relieved. Mm -hmm. I think they're almost happy to be able to keep going. Yeah. All right. Well, let's try to focus back in and talk about the movie more than what it means so what about how did the love story work for you is that what that was yeah that's you know <laughs> well i guess i guess that's one of the questions is whether it was yeah i don't know that i would call that a love story it just seemed that they were both taking advantage of the situation at whatever point seemed convenient for their various purposes so though maybe that is what love is <laughs> so yeah i don't it didn't register me register to me as a love story, um, and even at the end when he makes a little speech about you know if you get out we'll see each other if they hang you yeah I'll remember you it's not it's not really a lot of love there it's not... I I mean I don't think he's going to be pining for twenty no. years this no. is not Rick and Casablanca it is not waiting for Elsa to come back no. through his door no yeah he's like yeah, maybe I love you maybe I don't All right. he'll be back with the widow right. I mean, I do think, I think it's another one of those, like, just the marvelous ambiguities in this movie Mm -hmm. as to whether either of them actually feels anything for the other. And part of that, and we'll, we'll talk about like the Hayes Code stuff, but part of that was that, you know, anything suggesting a sex scene is removed from the movie. Right. You know, in the, in the novel, there were, they obviously slept together. Mm -hmm. Um, they were... The scene towards the end where there's the whole thing about the fat man palms a thousand dollar bill and mm-hmm. makes him think that Bridget has taken it. Mm-hmm. In the novel, Spade takes her into the bathroom and makes her strip. Oh. Makes her take all her clothes off. Okay. And searches her for the dollar bill. So that that isn't in the movie. So yeah, because of the because of the Hayes Code restrictions, the entire sexual component of this is removed from the movie, so at most, we get a kiss, and then the screen goes black. Right, right. And we, the next time we see them, they seem to be much more intimate mm-hmm. than they were before. So we kind of assume they slept together. Right. But all it all it can be is implied. Right. In the movie. Yeah, I mean the ambiguity. To me, it comes in part to I. I don't think Mary Astor is particularly strong in this. Oh, okay. 
I'm not a huge fan of her performance. I think she just, it's kind of vague. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that like, that's the thing. The vagueness kind of works because right. that character is so vague. But, I mean, one of the reasons I think the Bogey and Bacall movies, why, why Bogey and Bacall became such a thing is because it was like Bogey finally met his match. Right. Someone who had the same kind of screen presence that he had mm-hmm. and could spar know, with him. It's like a tennis partner yeah. finding a perfect partner and yeah. could hit the ball back and forth. And I don't think Mary Astor mm-hmm. was on that level and I don't think she could do it as well. So yeah, the censorship and the performance, her performance being a little vague and fuzzy, like she's never quite certain what she's supposed to be playing. I think that almost works to the film's advantage in some ways right. because again, you just don't know. Right. You don't know whether she really Well, and he calls that out a little bit, too, when he's like, you know, oh, you did really well with the quivering in your voice and the way that you're (laughs) doing the eyes. I almost believed you. So it's also just like calling out like... Right. Right. Yeah, so he sees through that. But then does he love her for that? Right. Like, he knows that she's full of shit, but then does he sort of love her for being full of shit? I don't know. Yeah. There's no love there. You don't think there's any love there at all? I don't think there's any love there at all. There may be like a, you amuse me? On either side? Or just for Sam's favorite? On either side. Okay. I don't know. You think she was just using him? I think she was just using him. Well, and that's... And that could be my cynicism coming through, but... That, in the end, is where he comes down. He right. says, I won't play this app for you. Right. That's where he draws the line. Yeah. It's like, I won't be like all those other guys that were in love with you and would do what you said. So, yeah. So, he's actually got these... He's got three women in his life. I think it's, I think it's a typical construction mm-hmm. where, you know, you have his... His girl Friday, who is wholly good and wholly supportive, and with whom there is no sexual relationship implied. But still beautiful. Oh, sure. Still beautiful. Right. And in some ways, the closest person to him. Yes. But there, there's no sex. No. And that's, you know, we, we see that archetype in a million movies. Not just film noir movies. You can look at something like... Uh, Vertigo. Mm. Jimmy Stewart has his his friend there who plays that same role. Um, the James Bond movies. It's kind of the Miss Money Penny right. role. You know, he never sleeps with her. Did he? I, I think he might have finally slept with, with Nomi. Her. Uh, with Nomi. Yeah. yeah. I don't blame him. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point stands. <laughs> and then you have the widow Iva, who is just kind of awful. She's terrible. And he hates her. With her veils. She's just all veil. Yeah. (laughs) And he was obviously having an affair with her. Although, again, that's something the movie can only hint at. Right. But mostly he's just pushing her away. And then you have Bridget, who's sort of in the middle and that kind of ambiguous. Is she good? Is she bad? Mm -hmm. Just a little bit of both. I I think when we watch, like, The Big Sleep, we're going to see some of the same dynamics play out. Yeah, I mean, looking at those three characters, one of the things that I was sort of thinking through was, are these three women, are their characters really only there in service to the male characters? But then thinking about Bridget, you know, she actually has her own uh, motivations and her her own agency throughout the film. She actually uses the men in order to achieve those goals for as far as that gets her. Right, you... You could make this movie from her point of view. Yes, you could. Where she is the hero of the story. And in fact, I think, and I again, I haven't seen this movie, but the Betty Davis version of this story, which is called Satan Metal Lady, she is the main character. Okay. 
and then everybody else is kind of... Well, she's Betty Davis, I mean... Right, how are you not going to make Betty Davis the main character? (laughs) Whether or not Mary Astor could have done that, I don't know. Um, All right, well, you want to talk about the other characters? Sure. Um, I liked Effie. She's very spunky. And... She's wrong, though. <laughs> like, he calls on her when right. he's no, intuition. She's just, yeah, Bridge is on the level. Bridge is fine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she's all right, that one, Effie says. And Effie fucks up, I think, a couple times. So, that's what women's intuition yeah. is worth in this all in yeah. this very masculine world. I think he says something like, let's try to get it right this time when he asks <laughs> her to do something. So like, yeah. And you gotta wonder, like, does Effie have a life? Like, he calls her up. You all know, kinds all of hours of the day. Yeah. Tells her he needs her no, to run Effie all over the city. Effie is there to service mm-hmm. him. So that's, that is her role. That is who she is. Um, the Cairo character I thought was interesting. I was not expecting him. This is Peter Lorre's character. Peter Lorre's character. Uh, who I, I've see, I see randomly in old movies. And I always really en- I enjoy him. He's a really interesting character. Yeah, actor. he's fantastic. Um, well, he... Half the cast of this movie is also in Casablanca. So, mm. Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, the fat man. <laughs> and Lorre and Greenstreet, this was their first pairing, but they made like nine movies together. Oh, they wow. Were, okay. Yeah. But yeah, he was... So, I did a little bit of... Um, I cheated a little bit because I'm supposed to be coming to these things pretty green. And I did... Well, I shouldn't say I cheated because I did not do any research prior to watching it. But after watching it, I did a little bit of digging and I read something... About so there's the scene with when uh, Cairo first comes to Sam's office to ask him offer him I think it was five hundred dollars to track down <laughs> right the uh, the which the, was really a low ball offer really low ball offer the Maltese Falcon but so Effie comes in with Cairo's card and he's like there's a there's a gentleman here to mm-hmm. see you and she notes that the card smells of gardenia right and nothing dinged for me there. And then there's a tussle between Sam and Cairo, and he punches Cairo out. And while he's out, he's rifling through Cairo's things, and he finds a handkerchief, and he brings it up to his nose and notes that the the handkerchief is scented. Mm. Nothing dinged for me there. And then I read the thing. It was like, oh, that's Sam, no, you know, making a note that Cairo is gay. Right. And I was just like, what? <laughs> so just like, yeah. So I think that is Hayes Code right. era. <laughs> Coding for like, right. homosexual. You have these characters that are, uh, I think, written to be sort of kind of quote unquote cosmopolitan, <laughs> and that's how that's supposed to be read. And I don't know if it's because 2018 me is looking like I don't know that anybody's gay until they say they're gay, and like that's just kind of <laughs> right. don't assume anything. I don't assume anything. So just because the guy's a snappy right. dresser, and he has a scented handkerchief, I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm like, all right. And it's like, no, no, he was making a note that he's gay. It's <laughs> like, oh. Lost that. Okay. Right. Which then Spade slapping him around right. as much as he does. Right. And saying stuff like, you know, when you get slapped, you'll like it. Right. Or whatever that line is. Then that, he that says. becomes more like, oh, you're a terrible person. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. Just... I mean, what's interesting, and I think, I think the movie is subtle to the point where you can completely miss it, but all three of the main criminals yeah. are probably gay but i felt like somebody's grandma who's like you don't know that your grandson is gay and it's like he brought his boyfriend to thanksgiving three years in a row his roommate and it's just, it's like, i'm like what who's gay you, you feel naive i feel so naive who's gay what like, yeah because 
it, it's assumed that Wilmer, um, played by the great character actor Elijah Cook Jr., is the companion sure. to the fat man. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Spade calls him a gunsel. And this this word is interesting because after DeShiel Hammett used it, and DeShiel Hammett used it deliberately to get it by the censors, it has the word gun in it. Right. People assumed it just meant gunman. a hood, right, yeah. a gunman. That's not what it meant. Gunsel comes from a Yiddish word that literally translates to something like young goose, but was slang for a kept boy. Oh. Yeah. So when Spade says, get that gunsel out of my face, that's, again, it's another bit of Hayes Code era. Homophobia. Right. Huh. Yeah. I did not know that. And apparently the 1931 version of this film was a little more overt about that. Again, that was made before the code started to be enforced. And that was one of the reasons why that movie could not be Mm re-released. So they, they remade it a third time. Does that come up a lot in film noir? That sort of coded homophobia sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of coding and a lot of... Um, and I'm not I'm not an expert on film mm. noir, and I won't pretend to be, but I, I do think, in general, in the cinema of, of that era, you can trace a lot of sort of sexual innuendo and almost this kind of secret cinematic language. Mm-hmm. I mean, the cliché of the train going into the tunnel mm-hmm. to symbolize sex. Right, right. I mean, that's that's an obvious example, but that does come from a very real right. kind of cinematic coding that mm-hmm. people were forced to do at the time. You know, I think... I think sometimes we in the modern age fall into, and I know like the right wing definitely falls into this mentality of things were purer and more innocent <laughs> in the 40s and 50s. No, they we just weren't. didn't talk about it. Right. right. They didn't, people didn't talk about it and movies were not allowed to show it. Right. And our concept of that time comes from movies and television where it was the sanitized... Lucy separate bay. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was a Hayes Code bay. You couldn't even, had a baby. You couldn't even show married people <laughs> sleeping in the same bed. Right. So this whole American notion that, you know, there was this pure, innocent time. No, there wasn't. Mm-hmm. There never was. And I think that's one of the things that film noir does so brilliantly is shows that, that world. Mm-hmm. Things were always just as scummy right. and corrupt and right. bleak as they are now. Is Citizen Kane considered film noir? It's not, but it's this was, it was actually the same year as this, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of similarities, like the camera angles right, and right. all of that, the techniques. That was one of the things I was thinking similar. when you were talking about the different definitions of film noir. Whether it's this sort of aesthetic set of rules, or is it? thematic set of rules or combination of both but aesthetically I see a lot of similarities in terms of shot composition the use of light and depth um, and the sort of stark contrast so I was just wondering if that was considered but it doesn't have really any of the thematic pieces so right the cinematography Mm. is very similar the techniques that were used like the the low camera angles that make people seem huge against the ceiling that kind of thing all right, well, it sounds like you actually enjoyed the Maltese Falcon. I did. I was. I did not hate the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> I would recommend the Maltese Falcon without qualification. You wow. don't even have to have mono. Just go watch the Maltese Has Falcon. Has this ever happened before? I don't think so. Okay. It's maybe the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so are you excited to watch more of these types of Film movies? Film noir? Um, sure. 
They're fun. They're zippy. Plot doesn't matter. <laughs> the dialogue is great. The dialogue is great. I mean, you get, yeah, the dialogue is fantastic. Um, so, and I'm always a fan of sort of sparring partners in scenes. I enjoy that type of stuff. So, I like when he when he hands uh, Wilmer's gun over to the fat man and said, "A crippled newsy took it away from him. I made him give it back." <laughs> Which He's, again. Now I'm going back and reading all of those those scenes of like, is he trying to make a dig of like, oh, you're, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes. Your little lover boy here couldn't handle it. So I mean, even it's if it's even if it's not like explicitly homophobic, it's definitely like a masculine. Right. Thing. And I mean, the symbolism of taking somebody's gun away from right. him. Is very. So many right. times. Emasculating. Right. right. It is yes. very emasculating. Right. And, yeah. So see, I'm, and I'm, he just yeah. he just slaps Wilmer around so much, and he slaps. I thought he was just Kyro shitty at his job. So I was like, oh, he's just shitty at his job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the old grandma. Oh my god, <laughs> he's just bad at his job. He's not a good Gunsel. <laughs> Didn't know what the fuck Gunsel meant. So yeah, terrible, 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 terrible. See, I would have been good in those days going to see movies like that. Was a very wholesome little film there. The Hays Code the worked Hays for Code. you. It, it would have worked. To... It absolutely would have worked. Yeah, sneak all this stuff past you. <laughs> totally would have worked. <laughs> all right. So, what was your favorite part of the movie? Favorite part of the movie. I think my favorite part of the movie was the sort of bottle episode moments at the end, where all of the characters are mm-hmm. in uh, Sam's apartment and kind of bouncing off of each other. With the dialogue, that was probably my favorite part of the movie. I love the part where Bogart starts to talk them all into turning each other in. Yeah. Or, like, giving each other, like, let's throw him the kid. <laughs> Not him? Okay, we'll have that Okay, well, then let's <laughs> give him Cairo. And if you want to talk me into giving him the girl, then we can talk about that, too. Yeah. That's that's him at his most joyously sinister. Yeah. And again, where you're not you're not quite sure if he means it, but it does it does turn out that he has some kind of moral code. He does. There is a line he won't cross. And in fact, the the key moment to me at the end is when the cops finally come. He not only gives them the bird and the girl, he gives them the thousand dollars. He does. He does not keep the which money. Which is a really interesting character tree. Which means he has done. A shit ton of work. <laughs> for free. <laughs> Basically for free. I think he made a couple hundred bucks here and there. Mm-hmm. But this has been a lot of effort and he didn't get anything out of it. No. He didn't keep his ill-gotten gains. He did not. So is he really this moral figure? Maybe he'll try to sell the fake bird on the black market or something. <laughs> I think the cops took that too. Oh, well, yeah. He's a good guy apparently. <laughs> Save for those parts where he's not good. <laughs> He's a tough man in a tough world. Sure. Like myself. Is that what you are? Um, sure. And what is your moral code? Um, exactly. Get, yeah, yeah, I'll get back to you on that. If you gotta think about it, you don't have one. <laughs> if you have to say it, you don't have one. Oh. I just live it. That's what someone says when they don't have anything. <laughs> anything at all. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening. For next week's episode, you know, Nikia, there's there's sort of two categories of films we do for the unenthusiastic critic. We do classic, critically acclaimed films, and then we do movies that everyone has seen. Mm-hmm. 
And so next week, we you know, we did a we did a true Hollywood classic this week. I think next week we're going to go the other way and watch a pop culture phenomenon that you happen to have missed out on. I think it's time to do Top Gun. I have no interest in that. That does not surprise me in the slightest. I already know the goose dies, so... Spoiler alert! Goose dies! So do I really need to watch it now? I mean, isn't it like the big, you know, narrative thing? Like, I just, I don't need to see Top Gun. So anyone disappointed that Nakia didn't hate the movie this week should tune in next week. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite app. And email us at michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. As always, we encourage you to suggest a movie Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until then, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. Goose dies. Everybody wants to wear a fedora and a trench coat. I know I did. Let's open a detective agency. We're not good at that. I could be good at that. I don't, I'm not interested in... No. If somebody came to me and was like, oh, my sister ran away with some dude, here's $200, I'm like, well, sucks for you. <laughs> She's probably happier, leave her the fuck alone. Bummer. <laughs> I don't care enough about people, so... <laughs> just, no, I love people. I'm just not the person for that job. Not at all. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, you can be the girl Friday. You can I don't want to be, be the girl Friday. Effie. I don't want to be your Effie. You call me precious and sweetheart, and no, thank you. No. Okay, I'll be your Effie. You wouldn't look good in the skirt, though. That was hurtful. I'm sorry. You have great legs. <laughs> <laughs>